From Los Angeles, California, on the MTV Podcast Network, this is North Mollywood. Today, Daniel Ralston joins us to talk about a previously undiscovered connection between one of the great bands of the 60s and one of the great bands of the 70s and 80s. And stick around afterwards because we're going to blow the lid off some previously undiscovered and terrifying undersea phenomena. I'm Alex Papadimus, sitting across the table from me, Poseidon's other daughter, Molly Lambert. And our guest today is Daniel Ralston. Daniel's a writer and director and the former co-host of the late, great Low Times podcast. But he's here today to talk to us about a story he wrote for BuzzFeed.com about the English rock band The Zombies. I'm re-recording this intro after the fact because Molly and Daniel and I jump right into talking about The Zombies as if you, the MTV viewer listener, are going to know who we're talking about. If you don't, uh, they formed in 1962. You've probably heard their biggest hits, She's Not There in Time of the Season. Maybe you heard The Way I Feel Inside in Wes Anderson's The Life Aquatic. Their most famous album is the 1968 psychedelic pop masterpiece Odyssey and Oracle, whose cult status The Zombies all but guaranteed by breaking up before it was released. Anyway, Daniel, hi. Hey, how are you? Welcome to North Mollywood. I am very happy to be here. So for those who haven't read the story yet, do you want to tell us a little bit about your hard-hitting expose on pretenders to zombies throne? Sure. Uh, So in 1969, when the zombies were having a lot of success in the United States with the song Time of the Season, which went to number three on the Billboard charts, Uh, They actually were back in England and had no idea that they had a hit record. They had a U.S. label called Date Records that didn't do a very good job communicating with them. So the band broke up and all the guys who didn't have like a publishing deal with the band just went on and got day jobs. Rod Argent started a new band with Chris White from the Zombies. Uh, So back in America, time of the season is extremely popular and people want to see the Zombies, but there's no Zombies to go see. So a guy in Michigan named Bill Kehoe, who had a promotions company called Delta Promotions, put together a fake version of the zombies and sent them out on tour. They were American guys faking British accents, wearing like psychedelic clothing, going out and pretending to be the zombies. And then it worked for a little while. So he put together a second version of the zombies, too, and sent them on tour as well at the same time in different directions. And this like you just told that story in less than 30 seconds. How long did this take you to sort of run down the particulars of this? Um, About seven years ago, I read a biography of the zombies that I bought in a used bookstore. And it was just kind of one of those, you see them, you know, next to like a nice thick biography of the Beatles. There's usually like a book that's mostly like a picture book with some details and some pictures you've seen a million times. I happened to see it for like a dollar and picked it up. And as I was reading it, there was a line that just said, while time of the season was popular, a group went around America pretending to be the zombies. That was it. The writer did not follow up on it. They did not do any research at all. And I got that idea stuck in my head about seven years ago. And it was like enough for me that I I wrote a screenplay. I wrote a movie around the idea. And then about two years ago, I got interested in trying to figure out who these people actually were. And then uh, about a year ago, uh, the editor at BuzzFeed, Steve Kandel, asked me if I wanted to write this article for them. And that's when I really dove into it once I like had the resources to be able to go to Michigan and find this management company to dig through the local newspaper to find reviews of shows. Uh, and we ended up finding some amazing stuff. And then I started trying to track down the people who were in these fake zombies. 
it's sort of disappointing that it really didn't take seven years, like start to finish. I was picturing it kind of like Zodiac, <laughs> like that there's like a fade to black and then it's like four years later and you have a beard and you're all messed <laughs> up and like your life is a wreck because you're trying yeah. to track down well, the zombies. Yeah. My life became a wreck, but for, uh, for different reasons. Um, there was about four years where it just wasn't anything to me. It was a, a script in a drawer. And then the thing that I guess sort of cut it loose was that I, I was doing some like deep internet research on this story and I, c I couldn't find anything. And then finally, you know, 15 pages deep in a Google search one day, I find this record collector's message board and there's a link to a post from a guy from 2006 that said, I was in this fake version of the zombies. This guy from Texas named Mark Ramsey. I look at the post, it's very long. It didn't make a lot of sense. There were some pictures that were really incredible um, that he had saved from this time. But he basically wrote a whole thing about his guitar collection and like the idea of the fact that he was in this fake zombies was a complete afterthought. Like he just wanted to talk about how he traded his Rickenbacker 12 string for, a, you know, 335 or whatever, you know, guitar nerd talk and kind of sort of, you know, circumvented the inter what was the interesting part to me. But there was an active email address on the post and I emailed him and he was around and... Nobody had really seen it. It had two comments and it had been up for like nine years. I was like, I think this is a story people would probably want to hear. Did uh, you talk to people about how what made this work was that nobody really knew what the zombies looked like? Yeah, you know, in 69, I think it was still very limited how much access you could get to an artist if you weren't like a music critic. You know, it's like you had a record on the back of a record with a picture of the band and maybe like you know, a grainy photo in Rolling Stone, which had, at that point was like very large and printed on newsprint and kind of looked terrible in, in a lot of ways. And yeah, people just didn't know. And the other thing is that most times when bands like that would come over to tour, they'd play as part of big package tours. So you'd go and see them play just their hit. So like one of the versions of the fake zombies only played time of the season and the entire <laughs> rest of their set was Texas blues music and nobody cared. That wasn't the giveaway? Yeah, you, there were a million. But you know what? It's like so many of those British invasion bands were obsessed with like Southern music. So absolutely, you could totally buy it that they're like, oh, they've got this one hit. And then they also just play Boogie Woogie for the rest of the time. Yeah, I just watched that Rolling Stones performance on the Tammy show. Oh, cool. Which is like they play, you know, Time is on my side and it sounds like them. And then the whole rest of their set, it's them playing. Just covers. Like, yeah, blues covers. What? ended up happening when you tracked down the fake zombies well it's a weird thing because it happened 46 years ago so a lot of people are either dead or don't have the internet it was hard for me to find a lot of the people who were involved i did find a guy named tom hocott who lives in grand rapids who worked for the fake zombies management company he did all their tour booking um, he was a really interesting guy and he was really helpful because he brought me this stack of photos that nobody had ever seen before that he took of one of these fake zombies and through those photos and the guy in Texas's photos I was able to put a lot of the people in the same room together at different times along the way and then in the sort of research for the article I was able to find reviews of fake zombie shows where the reviewer didn't really know that they were seeing a fake zombies and they're of course terrible they're just like as bad as they could get the reviews were terrible or the, the band was terrible? The reviews of the band were terrible, but it tells you a lot about how that kind of thing could happen because like, there's a, an account of the fake zombies playing a show with the real question mark in the Mysterians. 
which and, who knows what they look like. Right, and and even That's at that thing. point, the question mark and the Mysterians only had question mark. And he he originally had a band of Mexican guys as his backing band, and then he he replaced them with like a bunch of like white rock guys. So the real question mark and the Mysterians are playing with the fake zombies. The fake zombies come out, and the reviewer says that they're awful, that they don't sound anything like they did when they were selling millions of records. But then, when he's reviewing the real question mark and the Mysterians, he says that question mark came out on stage and said that their keyboardist had quit a week before, so they could not play 96 Tears because they didn't have anybody who knew how to play it. And then when they finished the show, everybody just left without clapping. So it's like the real band did as bad as the fake band. Because they couldn't play the song that everyone was there. The only song people to wanted to hear. Right. This is, I mean, if you don't know Question Mark and the Mysterians, this is like... That's their know, song. Yeah. This, it, it's like you go to the designer show and he doesn't play Panda. Like, that's the equivalent <laughs> of like what you're, you're like, wait, what, what, why? Like, yeah, no, there's a great, there's a moment in that story where like, I guess the, the Texas zombies didn't have a keyboard player, which is kind of a big part of She's Not There and yeah. many many zombies hits yeah as a matter of fact the the fake texas zombies um my favorite part of this this whole story is that their man the management company was like all right this is the first time we've done this we're going to send you out on a little test run but we think that the zombies are too popular so we want you to go out as this band the rose garden who had one hit go out as them do six shows see how it goes so they go and do this little six show tour and everything's fine. And the Rose Garden had a female lead singer, and they didn't even bother to find a girl to <laughs> sing for them, and they still got away with it. I mean, you know, things from England were very mysterious at that time. <laughs> I think that's yeah. what's funny, too. I watched a PBS documentary about Paul Revere and the Raiders, and just, you know, going back in time to a time when that was like a really cool band, and you see them, and you're like, they're all dressed up. <laughs> like, <laughs> yeah. they are in the Revolutionary War, and that that was cool but also that that's another band where you're like paul revere everybody knows who he is but like nobody knows who the raiders are and they were a billion different people over the years and that's what the management company would do usually is they would tell promoters that this version of the zombies had one original member or something like that they'd say that it had the bassist or the the drummer and of course they didn't have to really provide any sort of documentation that that was true and at the time the real zombie when the real zombies finally did find out about it there was kind of nothing they could do either. They were in England. They didn't really have, they had broken up, so they didn't really have the protection of a label anymore. So they had to try to get the band back together just to prove that they were still around and still alive. And then they started working on a third album that actually didn't end up coming out until 2009. They didn't have the, the DECA legal department working on it day and night. Yeah, it's it's a very weird, it sort of fell into this weird hole where nobody really knew what to do, what to do with themselves. And then the way that the management company ended up getting caught was because they also had a fake version of the animals and a fake version of the Archies. And the Archies, who you'd think would be the easiest to fake since they were a cartoon, were actually the hardest to fake because they were put together by Don Kirshner, who was like a huge music mogul and had a legal department who immediately went after this management company to shut them down. Isn't the thing about the Archies that they were just a bunch of studio ringers? But it was like a very specific, it. Yeah, yeah, it was a very specific group of studio ringers though yeah, who made the Archies, the Archies. Yeah. You just anyone... didn't you just don't fuck with Don Kirshner's money. Yeah. That's really what it was. Like, yeah, they found a this is not confirmed, but it's the it's look it looks from photos like the fake Archies were this band called the Bluesberry Jam who were like a folk band. 
that they were in this fake version of the Archies, and they even have, like, a really tall, goofy-looking guy who looks like one of the Archies. Like, they actually kind of looked like the actual cartoons. So they at least put some effort into that band. Um, there's another connection in this story to another band that uh, we were are big fans of uh, that maybe you should explain for our audience. Yeah, I want to know, like, what the moment was... When you went into this, you did not realize that you were going to find this other thread, right? Like you did, like that that connection came as a result of the actual investigation. Like, what did that like walk us through that process, if you could? You sure. Remember how it happened? Uh, yeah, and the the sort of, the thing that you're referring to is that um, that Dusty Hill and Frank Beard from ZZ Top, when they were 19 and 20, were in one of these fake versions of the zombies in Texas with Mark Ramsey, the guy who I originally found. Uh, and I certainly didn't believe it when I heard it, and and then when I was able to confirm it with uh, with the guy from Michigan who worked for the management company that de- that it definitely did happen that the guys in the pictures were in fact the guys from ZZ Top. That sort of just which again nobody knows what those guys look like under the beards. So absolutely, they had their own levels of success at that point too. That's the other kind of surprising thing is that the trajectory of G- ZZ Top would have happened anyway and then this tour that they did they've never talked about they've never even until we and we actually spent about a year trying to get an interview with them we were working with their with bob Merrillis, who's their manager who kept telling us no 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 they're never going to talk to you this is not something they talk about and then on my birthday a couple weeks ago on may 16th finally just out of the blue um dusty hill answered all of our questions in email Nothing fancy. No, you know, a lot of answers were like it was the '60s. He said that <laughs> three times, this. but um, but we at least confirmed that it did in fact happen, and that everything I'd been working on for all that time was the real deal. And um, now my my goal is that they're playing a festival together in Germany, the Zombies and ZZ Top. I'm going to try to work to get them in the same room together at least this one time for it's something. a z a z named band conspiracy my friend evan just sent me a picture of the record store where the zombies and zz top are always next to each other in like a classic rock section of the record store. maybe that's why they became zz top they're like <laughs> people are in the z section already <laughs> they'll be looking for us yeah Speaking of Archie's weird mysteries, I watched the season finale of my favorite show, River Monsters, this week, and I wanted to talk about it because it was the craziest River Monsters episode maybe ever in what has been the craziest season of River Monsters possibly ever, because this is the first season in, I think it's like the 14th season or something insane and it is the first time Jeremy Wade the hero of River Monsters has gone into the ocean so it is technically about ocean monsters but I also watched the after the the season was over they did a special about the making of this season and about how it was so hard even for a show that regularly goes to really remote places and has a really small crew and has to find really hard to find things in an incredibly short amount of time and then also be patient while fishing for those things. Uh, they just did a million things they'd never done before this season. 
Uh, Jeremy Wade did a lot of diving, which he was not an expert in. He seems like the kind of person who would be an expert at anything he wanted to do. He just seems so capable, especially when it comes to water-based things, that it was sort of interesting to see him be like, we really didn't know if we were going to find this thing. We didn't know if I was going to get the bends diving in this deep water. There was something he was talking about, about a type of diving. It's not free diving, but it's something where you can't see the floor. So there's no reference point for where you are. And it can just be, you know, you could just get lost in the ocean which seems like one of the scariest things that could happen. Oh, because you don't know which way is up? Yes. Wow. Um, So you have to bring like a rope, basically, so that you can climb back up the rope to find where you came from. Uh, But, you know, he had to learn these things in like a day. And he did. And when you watch the show, they caught a bunch of stuff on camera that had never been caught on camera before ever. And, you know, they talked about just how hard it is to bring the cameras places because the salt air would fuck up the cameras and they would have to clean them constantly. It is the craziest show and I think it's the best show on television and it is my mission to get everyone to watch it. Uh, Daniel Ralston, who's still here with us, Hi. is a big River Monsters fan as well. Yeah, I haven't seen this season yet, but I've, I've seen all of the rest of the seasons. Oh my God. Every time the season ends, I'm like, no, even <laughs> though I know it takes so much effort to make it i'm just like make 20 more episodes of this crazy thing that i want to see right now i've there are episodes of that show i've seen 10 times because you can just watch them over and over again it's yeah. very soothing and a weird for something it's, so terrifying it is. he's got a real asmr kind of voice that i've i like hearing him describe things um well i will do a spoiler on the season finale uh so all, all the setups of these episodes are that something terrible is happening to people in the water there's blood in the water he has to find out why or what's happening and he goes to the gulf of mexico because uh people are being attacked underwater and then usually it's like an svu episode like a law and order episode where they'll go look for some different suspects and then that suspect will be the wrong person but they'll lead you to another person there's like a sea snake loading things on a truck that's like i don't don't know what you're talking about yeah exactly (laughs) and then sometimes they'll go back to like oh but we'll return to the thing we looked at earlier that we ruled out already it turns out maybe it is the thing but this one everybody that he goes to talk to in he goes like baja and they said oh yeah yeah the diablo rojo obviously is the thing and he thinks maybe it's a shark at first and then he finds out that there are no sharks in the water because they overfished the sharks in order to get their teeth which are valuable Uh, and because they overfished the sharks it allowed a new predator to come in and completely take over the ecosystem and start attacking people sometimes And eventually what you find out is that this creature is a giant squid called the Humboldt squid and that it had never been seen in this area before. It comes from, I believe, South America and he ends up going to South America at the end of the episode to find it because it is not only newly moving up the coast, but it is completely unpredictable as to when it will show up. So he follows this thread that basically probably because of global warming, but maybe also mixed in with overfishing that the Humboldt squid are suddenly appearing in places they've never been seen before 
over like the last 10 years. They showed up first in the Gulf of Mexico, and then they showed up in like San Diego, and then they showed up in Los Angeles and Northern California, and now they've moved all the way up into Canada. And nobody knows when they show up. It's completely random, but they show up in flocks of a thousand. What? How, how big are they? Huge. <laughs> <laughs> They're huge, and they show up in flocks of a thousand. And if you happen to be diving while they are there, they will attack you because they feel threatened. And it was, you know, and I... Immediately after watching this episode, I was like, I got to look this up and see if this is true. And there were a lot of news stories saying, yeah, this is totally happening. Nobody knows why it's happening and nobody knows when it happens exactly, but it keeps happening randomly. Uh, And I read an article sort of trying to decide if it was aggressive behavior or not, or if people were just projecting aggressive behavior Mm. on the squids, because that's the thing people do a lot with ocean animals, especially. Uh, And it said, oh, yeah, they totally are aggressive in a flock and they hunt together in packs of like a thousand and so there's like a thousand giant squids hunting together and if you happen to be diving nearby they will take you with their giant they have like two tentacles specifically that are covered in teeth and those tentacles they use to like reach out and pull things towards the mouth. Can we talk about that mouth? There's yeah. nothing worse than a squid's beak. That is a disgusting. Oh my thing, god! Right? When they show it, it is just every nightmare in the universe. It looks like the scariest alien in the world because it's just like a round hole full of really sharp teeth. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It looks like <laughs> a like a Power Rangers villain or like a Cthulhu. It is kind of. a Cthulhu. I mean, it's real. Cthulhu is real and. There's a real implied narrative in this episode of like, oh, this is human's fault. And also these things are going to take over the ocean because there's nothing hunting them, really. What are they hunting for when they're not eating divers? First of all, are they eating the divers or are they just attacking them with their They're attacking teeth? them. Their mouths are like a little too small to eat them fully, but they for now. chomp like flesh yeah, out. Get munched. Yeah, for now. They get munched. They get munched. <laughs> And they, I, th- I don't know exactly. I think they're hunting other fish, but they also are cannibals of each other because if they like need food, they'll like kill somebody in the pack. Well, fish in general are yeah. like that. Even yeah, goldfish are like that if you leave them for long enough. And they're super smart because they are terrifying giant smart creatures. And if it was a horror movie, that's how you would end the horror movie is that you would do something that made them start attacking each other mm-hmm. and then they would kill each other. Right. You'd find some frequency. Exactly. Just, you know, drive, them, drive them mad. Squid frequency. They hate this song. <laughs> How much does global warming become a factor in if he's always investigating? They don't. I mean, most of the things are not new phenomenons. That's what's crazy is that most of the things he investigates are things that like everybody in a local community knows about. Right. It's like chupacabra of the ocean. Or it something. is all like chupacabra of the ocean. And what's crazy is they all turn out to be real. Like, sometimes he'll do an episode. If something isn't real, they won't pretend it's real, which I appreciate. It is like a scientific show. It's not like one of those shows that they do sometimes that are like, mermaids, are they real? Let's say yes, because that'll get better ratings than if we say definitely not. Wouldn't that be weird? Yeah. Yeah. And there's an episode where he goes to Russia that he's looking for something and everybody's incredibly sketchy, you know, where it's like he's asking around. It's like, it's very much like The Wire season two. It's like he's asking around and people are like, stop asking. Yeah. You don't want to find out. And what he ends up finding is that it's like 
bootlegging caviar. People are illegally fishing for belugas and stuff that yeah. they're not allowed to fish for. And again, just just as interesting as if you found an actual sea monster. That's crazy that he's looking for sea monsters and it's actually like caviar. I, was yeah. gonna, I, I thought it was going to turn out to be like, that we're actually moving all the crocodile moves through here. Like, <laughs> that's how, like, I mean, that's implied. Yeah, it's under the caviar. The caviar is a decoy. But it's also that one's interesting because it's like the water's so polluted you can't see anything in it. And that happens in a few episodes where he goes somewhere and then he's like, we can't tell because we can't see what's going on in the water. Which, again, just what a mysterious place, guys water who knows there's a good fraser episode about them buying bootleg beluga caviar yes that is too. the best <laughs> fraser episode where they get addicted to caviar and they become like cokeheads for caviar uh and they're like threatening each other of like you took the last cat like oh it's such a good episode that was a great fraser uh so yeah i i would like to recommend that everybody watch this season of river monsters um in particular even if you're new to river monsters this is maybe the season to watch because it just has a billion insane things. And the Humboldt squid is all I can think about now because it is huge also. And it's coming for you. And it's coming for all of us. So this is probably our last podcast before the squids take over. Thanks for listening. (laughs) <laughs> I can't. That is a dark I can't, I can't improve on that cliffhanger. We, we, yeah, we need to just fade up the most ominous sweet attack music. This episode of North Mollywood was produced by Michael Catano, Mukta Mohan and Kasia Mihailovic for the MTV Podcast Network. Follow us on Twitter at MTV Podcasts and subscribe to this and other MTV Podcasts on iTunes.